a copy of the scriptures, would you grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the seat back, so you can just look underneath the seat in front of you. You should be able to find one. And if you are using one of the Bibles in the chair back, this, we're going to be on page 1014. 1014. So we're going to do a little study here, open up the Word. We believe in the Word. We find life and truth. It's like a living well full of refreshing water. And when we drink it in, we never thirst. It's not always easy. It's it's not always um, exactly what we want to hear. But I guarantee you, it's what we need to hear. So uh, however this message hits you today, just know God doesn't make mistakes. You're not here by accident. He has something for you. So be asking him, press in to what he has for you this morning. So let's go ahead and read the passage. We are in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're walking through it. Uh, The title of our series is Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. We're going to encounter some peculiar wisdom today. um, And some of it we're just going to have to take on faith. That God says this is how it works in the spiritual places. And because this is how it works... There's some consequence. There's some great joy. So let's read what he has to say. Chapter 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Quote, he's quoting uh, probably a slogan that was well known in the day. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord, and here he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. And you see that's a quote from Genesis. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, let's talk about sex. (laughs) So that's what we're talking about this morning. Nothing wrong with that. God invented it, designed it, prescribed it for those in a covenanted marriage relationship. So let's talk about it. There's three things I just want to point out. These truths that I said, you have to take them by faith because you can't quite see them. 
you can't quite investigate them scientifically, but God has told, the, told us that they're true, and they're incredible truths. So if you don't hear anything else in the sermon, I want you to know these four things. Are you ready for the four things? Number one, God raised Jesus' physical body from the grave and death, and God will raise your body, your physical body, from the grave and death. That's an incredible truth. The second truth, your bodies are part of Christ's body, which elsewhere in Scripture we know is, is how the, what is referred to as the church, the global universal church, that God is knitting all people together into his body, which is the church. That's incredible. Your bodies, your physical bodies, are spiritually connected to Christ's body. Third truth. Anyone joined to the Lord Jesus is one spirit with him. Whoa. We become, somehow our spirit becomes knit together and connected to Jesus' spirit. It's an incredible truth. And number four, your body, your physical body, is a temple for the Holy Spirit. They say, prove it to me, Dave. Well, I can't. God's told us this is true. We have to ask, is it true? Now, if all these things are true, what is it going to mean about this body of mine, about your body? What does it mean? It means your body is of so much greater value than you've ever thought. However valuable you think your body is, God thinks it's way more valuable because he's connected it with his body. He's going to raise it up in the end. He's become one spirit with you and your body. And he said, I'm going to dwell in your body. It's a temple of my spirit. Your body is so valuable in the sight of God. We have too low of a consideration of our own bodies. God has a high consideration of our bodies. That's like the one thing I don't want you to miss in this, how valuable your body is in the sight of God. So he's going to tell us in this passage to do two things because of that. Two commands. Flee sexual immorality which could be translated fornication, which was a part of the vice list we talked about last week. Flee fornication, sexual immorality, all forms of it, and glorify God with your body. So how do we do that? So we're going to look at all that today. Now, before we start and look break down the text, I want to make a big meta-argument here that I think is important for us. Anytime we're talking about developing in ourselves, in our community, 
a, a, a sexual ethic, a shared sexual ethic. <clears throat> One question you have to ask yourself of any moral system, and I don't think we ask it enough, is this. What would the world be like if everyone adhered to our or a moral system? What would the world be like? How would it be different if everyone perfectly adhered to it? So we need to ask ourselves of our current, most popular sexual ethic in the West, in America, in a city like Seattle. And then we need to ask that same question of the sexual moral ethic that Paul's going to lay out over the next chapter and a half. <clears throat> we get to talk a little bit about sexual immorality, so that's all sex this week. Next week we're going to look specifically about sex and the marriage relationship. We're going to look at celibacy. We're going to look about marriage and remarriage, how it all plays out. Now, what would the world look like if everyone in the world lived out the sexual moral ethic that the Bible prescribes? And what will the world look like if everyone lived out the sexual moral ethic that the Western world prescribes? See, see I think we, we think too small. We think too small. I'm going to get very specific here about you, think about your own body. But I want us to think bigger than that. I think God wants us to think bigger than that. Because I think we've become way too comfortable with sin in our world. Like, we don't even think about it. It just is what it is. Nothing you can do about it. Well, God doesn't think that way. He says, I can do something about it. I have done something about it. And I will do something about it. But we just sort of accept this is the way it has to be. So I want you to think right now about what your perfect world would look like. What would your perfect world look like? What would be a part of that world? What wouldn't be a part of that world? So just ask yourself the question. We're going to talk a little bit today about prostitution, which we've said is, was very common in Corinth. In fact, there was a big, up, up on a big hill behind the city, there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And it's very common for people to go up there, and part of the spiritual practices was to have sex with temple prostitutes. Very good chance Paul's talking about that. They'd also come down into the city. They live in brothels and, and whatnot. So what is the perfect world? Is that the perfect world? Or when you think of a perfect world, would it be a, would it be a world devoid of brothels, sex for pay, sex trafficking, human trafficking? What's your perfect world? Okay? Does it include those things or does it not? Is the porn industry a part of your perfect world? Now, as you think of your perfect world, ask yourself this question. Does the sexual or the moral sexual ethic that you adhere to or that people you know adhere to, does it lead ultimately to that perfect world? And I'm going to assert today, if it doesn't, then the ethic must be broken. It must not be the perfect ethic if it cannot deliver what you ultimately think it should. That might seem like a 
super simple argument. Maybe it's not. I just don't think we think about it enough. So let's do it. Let's ask that question. Would, what would the world look like if the classic Christian sexual moral ethic was perfectly lived out as described in part in these chapters in 1 Corinthians in our world? If everyone lived it. Everyone. I believe there would be no more brothels. I believe sex trafficking and the sex trade would dry up because there'd be no money in it. I believe that no longer would sleeping with a married man or sleeping with a married woman or fearing that your spouse would sleep with somebody besides you, believe that would go away. I believe that God would grant strength to those unmarried to live a life celibate so that they might use their life and their body to glorify God and do good works. And God would give them deep spiritual friendships within the church so that they might find satisfaction. They wouldn't be lonely. So in this world, think about all the things that die. Fear of infidelity. The endless comparison that plagues all of us when we think about our, ourselves and our bodies and are we good enough. Sex as auditioning. The sex trade and human trafficking. Brothel, brothels, sex for hire the pornography industry, sex as marital performance. And I think, actually, the abortion debate dies as well. All if the Christian sexual moral ethic were lived out in the world. What's option two? Option two, we have to think of it. The Western secular moral, uh, sexual moral ethic. Do the same exercise. If everyone in the world fully adopted the ideas of free love, the heart wants what the heart wants, what world would it create? And the answer is not that hard. It would create the world we live in times two, probably. Times two. You know what won't die? Sex trafficking, brothels, sex trade, porn industry, sex as performance in marriage, sex as auditioning, fear of infidelity, endless comparison. None of that dies sticks around. Do we want that? I call option two partnering with the fall. Option two is partnering with the fall. And I understand why we, so many have adopted this, because it does feel like this cat's out of the bag. There's no getting it back in. I understand that. 
I understand it feels like this will never change. And I just, I just need to remind you, because I think sometimes we forget that, that is not the way God thinks. <laughs> Nothing is ever too far gone for God. So the world I described is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, where his rule and reign takes full root. And he says, don't get comfortable with this world that partners with the fall. Don't get comfortable with it, because I'm bringing a whole new kingdom, and I've invited you to it. Have we gotten too comfortable with the fall? Does your sexual ethic lead to the world you actually want, or does it lead to something else? just wanted to start there, because when we get into what Paul has to say, our tendency is going to want to say, yeah, but who really lives like that? Nobody's going to do that. And Paul's going to say, the people of God will. The people of God can, and the people of God should. So let's look at what he says. Starting here, um, Well, actually, before I start looking at these slogans, I just, I just want to say this one other thing. Remember what Paul says in, said last week, chapter 6, verse 11. What did Paul say? He just went through a vice list where he names all sorts of things that won't be a part of the kingdom of, of God. And then he says this, 6.11. And some of you, you could translate, and most of you used to be like this. But you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jump over to chapter 7, verse 2. What does he say? He says, But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Why do I bring these up? It's so common. I just want to start off. It's so common. It's so common. All of us. I I, I don't have to guess at that. All of us have fallen short in this area. It's so common. And so Paul is trying to help the Corinthians. Because it's so common. And Paul is trying to help us to transcend The traps that are so common, both then and now. Thank you, Paul. (laughs) We just said that. Thank you, Paul, for trying to help us deal with this so common issue that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of the kingdom of God now, the full presence of Christ in our life, to see him face to face, to know him, and to worship him, and to love him. This is what Paul's doing. I hope you can receive it. Because this was a real issue for the Corinthians. And it's such a real issue for us. And sometimes we don't even realize what it's doing to us. This is Paul's big argument. He says, all other kinds of sin happen outside the body, but sexual sin happens in the body. Meaning, 
you can't compartmentalize it. You can't get away from it. It affects your body. Sexual sin, I've experienced this personally, many a time, myself, it's like stepping into a tar pit. And it just slows you down from all the other things God has planned for you. All the good work he has planned for you, all the joy and the happiness. It's like you step into a tar pit. It doesn't mean you can't move. That's why sometimes we wonder, no, it's not, it's, not, it's not stopping me, I'm moving. But you're in a tar pit. It weighs you down. It bogs you down. I've been thinking about analogies all week. It's like, um, as many of you know, you know, and, and maybe you probably experienced this too. Um, I was a basketball player, and sometimes you'd go and you'd lift weights. And you'd lift weights, and you'd pump iron. That's what they call it, iron. Pump it. Pumping the iron. And uh, you'd get what they call, a, you get swole, and, and so you're feeling good about yourself, you look good. So then you step out on the court, or the soccer field, or wherever, you, or you play, you know, tennis court, whatever you are, and you try to shoot. And it's, it's like your body's not firing. Has anybody experienced this? And, you're like, and it's, it's the weirdest feeling. And you don't understand, why, why, why aren't my muscles firing? Uh, you can experience this. You go on a great hike. Uh, many of you are probably watching this uh, on delay because you're out on a great hike. And I just want you to feel it. The next day, your legs will hurt and you'll stand up. Now, just try to go for a normal run the next day after a long, great hike. It's like your muscles don't fire, right? It's like, it's this weird feeling. It's like you've got, you know, two prosthetics. You're like, why isn't it going? So this is the feeling. And the best analogy that I came up with this week, me and Ryan were jamming, is this. It's like running a marathon in jeans. I don't recommend it. Running a marathon in jeans. The Bible again and again talks about the Christian life as a marathon. We've got a couple of those verses. Let's throw it up. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have also, or, or since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And then again in 1 Corinthians, same, same chapter here, verse 9, it says this. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we, we compete, we run to receive an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Guess where that's at in the world? Greece? Guess what happens in Greece? The Olympics. Now, there, there was an Olympics in Athens, and there actually was a, a, the Isthmus Games. It was actually closer to Corinth but the same thing. They'd run these marathons. So everyone would have been familiar, and we'll get to, to, to that passage in chapter 9, with this idea of running the race. And so what you allow to happen to your body matters if you want to run the race well. And when you give yourself over and 
to sexual sin and don't avoid sexual sin, it's like running a marathon in jeans. Sure, you can finish. Sure, you'll be able to keep going, but it will be totally unpleasant. (laughs) You won't be able to run very fast. You won't be able to win the race and accomplish all that God has planned for you. That's why Paul's talking like this. That's why he's trying to explain to us in the spiritual realm what happens to our physical bodies when we allow the desire for sex to find root outside of the covenant of marriage and all the forms of it. He's saying, it will mess you up and I want you to run well. I want you to find joy. I want you to enjoy the race. Yes, life is hard. Marathon is not something I enjoy doing. My wife's run marathons. I would never choose to do that. But it is what God set before me, a marathon. And I just don't want to run in jeans. So I'm going to avoid sexual immorality. I'm going to flee sexual immorality. So let's dig deep into the specifics here. Paul starts by quoting what seems to be a slogan that was probably either something he came up with that sort of summarized kind of how the Corinthians thought, not just within the church, but the whole culture, or something that actually was said quite often. Everything is permissible for me. And then he's going to quote it again. Everything is permissible for me. And then he quotes one more. He says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then he makes these little interjections after them. So scholars have sort of debated, like, what, what is he doing here? What is he talking about? There's a couple options. Perhaps these are common slogans in the city of Corinth. It, it, it's almost like, if this is the case, Paul's saying, like, you, you guys have this slogan uh, in the world, and you've adopted it in the church, and so you, say, you sing things like, you know, I, I got this one of the common areas, free from the law, oh, happy condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission you know like it's like a little like like Christ has saved us from all things so we don't have to worry we can do anything that could be what Paul is speaking against and if so he says but not everything is beneficial sure you can run a marathon in jeans I don't recommend it that's what Paul could be saying he could just be pointing out that these slogans have no place in the church, even though it is true that there's nothing apart from denying the work of Jesus Christ that can separate you from the kingdom of heaven. So in one sense, it's true. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Paul goes on to say, I won't be mastered by anything. I have one master. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this could be true, and, and I think it's helpful to think about it in this way. Because sometimes there's slogans in our society which we don't think critically enough about. Things that we just sort of adopt. And the question is, are they true? Do they align with the other truths that we have here? So, I'm not going to make a lot of comment about these, but here's just three slogans of our day and age that I think sometimes we just sort of repeat unthinkingly and wonder, what am I actually saying? We might say, love is love. It's a common cultural slogan. We might say, my body, my choice. We might say, the heart wants what the heart wants. In one sense, these are true, 
But we have to ask the deeper question. Are they true truth? Does Scripture affirm them? Does God affirm them? Maybe in some sense, yes. But often in another sense, in the peculiar wisdom of Christ, no. Do we adopt them? Do we regurgitate them? Do we bring them into the church? Or do we find some other slogan that fits both types of truth? Scholars will also say perhaps what Paul's doing here is there's some bad theology that has rooted into the church, and that bad theology is disconnecting the body from the soul. And so um, some people would say, and this was actually there's a form of Greek philosophy that would think this way, that the body is bad, that the body is evil, and the soul is good, and when we are saved, our soul goes to be with God, and our body we're disconnected from it, and finally, thank you. And so perhaps what Paul's doing is he's saying, that's not the right way to think about it. And he uses this quote. Perhaps some people were using that bad theology and saying, you know, just like the food is, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So the body is what the body is. It's bad, it's evil. God doesn't redeem that. So we can use our body however we want. Just like the stomach's for food, and so let's not think too much about it. And Paul's saying, that's not true. Why is that not true? Because God rose Jesus' body from the grave. And he's promised that he'll raise our bodies from the grave. So salvation is not a bodiless experience. It's very much an embodied experience with new, regenerated, healed bodies in the kingdom of Christ who will have a physical body. God will be in the flesh for all time. And so that's bad theology. So perhaps that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, we can't bring this sort of Gnostic idea of uh, a soul-only heaven into our churches. It's creating bad practices because we live that out and we don't think what we do with our body really matters. Not true. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15, if you've been with us, will speak a lot to that issue. There was bad theology that was trying to be preached in the church in Corinth. And Paul gives a whole chapter to debunking that idea. Scholars will say, give a third option. Perhaps it's we don't have to look too deeply into this. Perhaps all Paul's doing is he's just offering some popular phrases to help us transition from the section that came before, which is all about things he'd actually heard that were happening. Remember the man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law? And Paul says, I can't believe that's happening. Not even the Corinthians think that's okay. And then he's gone into the vice list. He's talking about lawsuits amongst believers. These are actually things that he's heard. And now he's, he's quoting some some slogans as he's transitioning into some broader teaching that's maybe not rooted in real realities that he's heard about, but he just knows this is, this is a thing in the church. Now, all three of these could be true as well. Whichever reason Paul is bringing these things up, I think there's one thing we know for sure. There's one thing that we know for sure. And we, we see a particular clarity in it when he says the food is for stomach and the stomach is for food. And he's saying that's not true. The big idea is this. God isn't trying, and Paul is not trying to condemn the Corinthians. He's trying 
to help them see that their bodies were made for so much more. So why is it not beneficial? Because your body is made for so much more. Why is it not like the stomach is made for food? Because your body's so much more than just the biological processes of creating energy. Your body's so much more. Why will you not be mastered by anything? Because to give your body away to something else and to let it own you and, 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 and use you, your body is made for so much more. So much more than what? So much more than sex. Your body is made for so much more than sex. Let me say it again. Your body is made for so much more than sex. Why do I have to say it so many times? Because you're going to see between now and the next time we meet probably 10,000 messages that tell you your body is primarily made for sex. So how many times do I have to say it? Your body is made for so much more than sex. I probably should just, for the rest of the time, just say, your body is made for so much more than sex. He's like, I know that, I know that. No, you don't. You're buying it. You're believing it. And maybe you're not, but the, your friends are, your coworkers are, which is why they could never fathom a, a sexual ethic that says to them, save it for marriage. Because they're like, my body's made for sex. I, I've been told that so many times. You need to just tell them, hey, your body's made for so much more than sex. My hope is that, listen, it is true that this sexual ethic that Paul preached, that we preach, you know what? It's going to take a long time to take root in the whole world. And very well, probably won't until Christ returns. However, don't let that be an excuse to become comfortable with it. This church needs to be a place, an alternative to the world. The world will always say your body's made for sex. This is a place, Sedaris Church, where your body is made for so much more than sex. And if we live this out, this sexual ethic out, here's my hope. That in this place, there's freedom for unwanted sexual pursuits. In this place, in this community. That this is a safe place. That this is a safe place where you don't have to worry about your spouse coming in here and having sex with somebody else in this community. So you're not worried about that. This is a place where you're not feeling constantly compared to other bodies in this room. That this is a safe place where you feel freedom from sexual stares and the fantasies of men or women who look at you as a sexual object. That this is a place free of that. So that when we invite somebody to our table to sit with us and live with us and eat with us long before they receive the invitation of Christ, that they might say, there's something different about this place. It doesn't feel the same. This feels like the kind of world I want to live in. And then we get to tell them why. To say that Jesus died for their body so that their body would be known as a body that's so much more than just sex. Could we create that? Could this be that kind of place? Could this be the alternate kingdom of God right here? I pray it could be. That the slogans of the world wouldn't find 
root in our community because we believe what the Word of God says, the slogans of Christ, and we might find that freedom. Lord, help us. Now, I want to now break down three, the three do-you-knows that Paul spoke about here. Did you see that? Three times he said, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? And a lot of us are like, no. <laughs> I didn't know that. He would probably taught this already. He's the one who founded the church. He's like, don't you remember? I told you this. And what we're going to see with each don't, don't you know, he's going to do three things. A, B, C. He's going to tell them a truth, which they could only know by revelation. Then he's going to apply that truth to the very specific sin of sleeping with a prostitute. And then he's going to give C, an imperative, because of that. Okay? So I just want you to see it in the text. So here we go. In 15, he says this. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Here he's speaking to believers. So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. You see the ABC? Now, quick caveat. I assume, I assume it's obvious, but I just want to make sure. He's picking out prostitutes, not because prostitutes are inherently the most sinful or evil people, okay? Most often, we know this of our day, too. There's a reason that they ended up in that line of work, and it's not usually by their choice. Somebody has sinned against them, and so this is either their only option, they have no self-worth, Whatever it is. It would have been true. There's nothing new under the sun. It would have been true of if this is what you found your profession to be in the city of Corinth, to be a professional sex worker, whether it's at the temple or outside the temple. Paul's not going after prostitutes here. Jesus had compassion and love for those in the sex trade. More than he did for the Pharisees, for the teetotalers, for those who prayed in the square with eloquent prayers. He cared about those working for sex. So I just want to make that clear. That's not at all what this passage is about. It's about those who then go use those people to satisfy and and gratify their own flesh. What did Paul say in the vice list? What did he say in the vice list? Do you remember? What's one of the vices, he says, that will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you remember that? Just back in the last passage. The greedy. The greedy. Now think about this in the realm of going to visit the temple prostitutes or a brothel, wherever. How greedy it is. David Garland, a commentator on this passage, says this. He says, The greedy are those who treat others only as objects for their gratification. The greedy includes those who believe that their sexuality is a right rather than a responsibility. So Paul is not going after the sex worker. He's going after the greedy who think their sexual expression is their right rather than their responsibility. 
So what are the ABCs in this first don't you know? This could blow your mind. The truth is this. Your bodies, A, are members of Christ's body, which is what? The church. So apply this now to going and paying for a prostitute. He says, will you then connect parts of Christ's body to a prostitute? What's he saying? He's saying, your selfish, greedy sexual expression isn't just affecting you. You think it does, you've convinced yourself it does, you don't think it's affecting anybody else, but it is, because you're connecting that sin to the whole body of Christ. Don't be flippant, Paul says. It's affecting the whole community. What's the imperative? You saw it. Never. Absolutely not. Not in this house. See the exclamation point? That's how you know the Greek word is an imperative, which means he's yelling. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Absolutely not. Now, this isn't new. Um, this idea that it affects the community what you do in your sex life. You go back in the Old Testament, you can see this over and over again. God has told the people of Israel, I'm going to give you this land. I do not want you to intermarry with the Canaanites. Not because intermarriage is wrong. This, isn't a, this is not an ethnicity thing or a race thing. It's because they were worshiping other gods. And so if you married somebody that was worshiping all these idols, guess what's probably going to happen to you? You're going to integrate their worship into your worship, and that's going to make the worship of God unholy, impure, tainted. So don't do that. In Ezra, so, th so they do that. It goes terribly wrong. The kingdoms fall into deterioration. There's a number of bad kings. Then the Babylonians sweep in. They conquer Jerusalem. They export and take into slavery all the people of Israel again. And then 50, 60 years later, King Cyrus allows the Israelites to come back to Jerusalem, back to the land that God had given them, and they begin to put things back together. And the same imperative is there. And you see this in Ezra. God says, don't take for yourselves wives of the people who don't worship me. Well, guess what happens? They can't control themselves. They see beautiful women, they marry them, and it doesn't go well. And so in Ezra chapter 10, or sorry, chapter 9, you see this incredible confession from Ezra where he's like, we have done it again. We've not listened to you. We have, because of our inability to control our sexual desires, we have tainted the, your worship, God. And, he's, and, and Ezra says, I know we probably deserve to be taken into captivity again. And he begs and he prays that God would have mercy and grace on them. And God does. Why? Why does God take this so serious? Because... The decision of a few affects the whole community. This is a constant theme throughout the scriptures. So don't you know 
that your sexual activity affects the whole body of Christ, the whole community of God's people, it's not just about you. It affects so much more than just you. So absolutely not. Do not connect yourself, Paul will say, with a prostitute. Okay. The second, don't you know, verse 16. What's he say? Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. He's talking about when Adam and Eve were brought together in marriage. They had sex. They consummated the marriage. They fit together perfectly. Their coming together creates offspring. And the two become one flesh. There is this deep spiritual connection, Paul says, that happens when you have sex with someone. It's not just like the stomach is for food. It's not just a biological exchange, a chemical exchange. It's spiritual. The two become one flesh, even if you're having sex with a prostitute. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. So flee sexual immorality. Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. So you see the ABC. The truth is, the one joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. And the one joined to any other flesh through sex becomes one with them. Applied to prostitution, see, you are doing with someone who you don't intend to marry what was only intended for marriage. And you are confused now in the spiritual realm. And you've even confused your connection with Christ. So the imperative C, flee. Flee! You see it coming? Because it's coming. Run. <laughs> Back to forest. Run, forest. Just run. You see it coming? Just run. You don't want that. It's going to mess you up. Your connection with Christ is going to be affected because you've inserted a third party into that that isn't your wife or your husband. So run. Flee. It's not worth it. You know it's not worth it. I know it's not worth it, and yet it's still so powerful, right? Third, don't you know? Third, don't you know? Verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. The A, the truth, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the most crazy. Jesus Christ was the first human body that became the eternal temple of the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send that same spirit that I had, and he's going to live in you, and you become the temple. So that when anybody runs up to you on the, sees you on the street, they can experience going to the temple of God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. Stay right in Seattle, and you can experience coming to the temple of God. That's an amazing truth. Applied now. Applied. Paul says, making you a temple wasn't free. 
It came at a great price. Christ bought you, so stop buying prostitutes. And the imperative, instead, glorify God with your body. It's an incredible truth that God said, I'm going to connect myself to you. You're going to be my representatives of the world. People are going to experience and know me and understand holiness by watching you, by coming near to you. So if you connect yourself in a one-flesh sexual act with somebody that isn't your spouse, imagine what you're doing. Imagine what kind of temple you become. Is this the kind of temple that's going to reflect the glory of God? Or is it going to reflect something else? That's what Paul's saying. That's your responsibility. So the same ABCs are true. Don't we know what God has said about this? All these truths are true of us, as they were for the Corinthians. Now you need to apply them to your sex life. It's probably not as common as it was then to buy prostitutes. But sexual immorality is just as common today. Apply those truths. If these things are true of you, if you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you are one spirit with Christ, if every time that you have sex, you become one flesh with the person you have sex with, if your body's going to be raised again by the power of God, if when you sin, it affects the whole community, apply that to your sex life. I don't even need to tell you what to do. You know what to do. You're smart. You can apply it. If you need help, I'll just tell you. Flee fornication and glorify God with your body. Now figure out how to do that. Get strategic. Get smart. Get serious. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this. Throw this up on the screen here, Ivan. Paul, another letter he wrote to the Corinthians after they didn't listen to this letter. <laughs> By the way, I had to write another one. So everybody's got mud in their ears. He says this, test yourselves, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. When it comes to this issue, we all, myself included, need to examine ourselves, test ourselves, Ask, is Jesus Christ in me? And if so, how am I stewarding that responsibility? That this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's okay to examine yourself and test yourself and be reminded that God is with you. And therefore, you live to another standard. As we've said many times before, those who do not have Christ have a different standard. But those who are the temple of the Spirit have to live to the standard that Christ has set. It's His peculiar wisdom that guides us. I have so much experiencing, experience falling short in this area of my life, okay? So this is coming from first-hand experience. I know what it feels to be stuck in the mud pit, to be stuck in the tar, 
to be running a marathon with jeans on. I know, and I also know what it's like to take those jeans off and to, to throw on some, some spandex. Super fun. Though embarrassing at times. <laughs> I've been embarrassed living into the sexual ethic of Christ. But it's so much better. It's so much more free. I accomplish so much more. And I'm saying this not as somebody just reading the text, as somebody that's experienced. I know what the mud feels like. And every time I fell back into it, because you will fall back into it, I felt the mud in a new way because I felt the freedom in a new way. Talk to an experienced Christian. They'll say, this is so true. Every other sin that you commit is outside the body, but sexual sin's in the body. And when you feel it, you feel it. It's like shooting baskets after lifting. It's like going on a hike and then trying to walk up the stairs the next day. It affects your body and makes you less effective for the things God's called you to. It's just true. So I need to examine myself and realize there is a better way. I'm pretty much sure all of us have fallen short in some way, some more than others, when it comes to using our bodies exactly how God has designed for us to use them. We have all fallen short of his perfect standard. That's what sin means, falling short, missing the mark. We all could run the race just a little bit better. If, if in my words you're not saying that's so true, it is like running a race in jeans. It is like being stuck in tar. If, if, you, if you're like, I don't know if that's true, my guess is you've never experienced freedom from your sexual sin. And so I'm not here to condemn you. I'm just saying try it out. Try living a life free from whatever sexual immorality you've been living in. Try it. Try it for 30 days. And just see. It's like take off the jeans, put on some spandies, and just see. And if I'm wrong, after 30 days, come tell me. I'm serious. See how it goes. Because Paul and God wants you to experience life and life to the full. That's why he tells us these things. Not to be a spoil sport. He wants us to experience life and life to the full and to know him to the full. And we can't do that when we cling and are mastered by any sin, especially sin that lives in our body. Finally, let me say this. The reason we gather in praise every day, and, and Sunday's every day too, but the reason we praise our God every day is because God's grace, His mercy, His forgiveness is so deep that we never reach the bottom of it. And I think in our society, in this time, with the slogans of our day, that's no more true, as it was for the Corinthians, in the area of sexual immorality. God's pockets are deep, friends. You cannot outrun his mercy and grace. You can never get too far gone. You can never sin too much that he cannot forgive. He has paid it all, which is exactly why we give him back our body and say, do with me what you want. So we praise. Ezra 10, even after this very difficult passage, sorry, Ezra chapter 9, Ezra says this beautiful thing. He says this, after all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, 
though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive. This is one of the beautiful passages. Like, if we knew how offensive it was to God, what we're doing with the body that he bought on the cross, we know what we deserve. And Ezra says it, and I'd say it. God punishes us way less than we deserve, particularly in this area. What does he do with our sexual sin? We talked about it last week. He justifies us. He washes us. He sanctifies us. Whatever sin you feel that you've committed in the area of sexual immorality, this is what God says to you. Chapter 6, verse 11. He says, that sin, I've paid for it on the cross. You're justified. You're declared not guilty in the court of God. That sexual sin, God has washed you clean. He's removed whatever shame you feel. So if you feel shame still for past sexual sin, you're not fully giving it over to Christ to take. He wants to wash you clean of that so you no longer feel shame. And then he says he wants to sanctify you. He wants to remove your immaturity in your thinking about sex and your sex life and your sexual ethic. And he wants to give you new strength and new power to live into his way. That's what he wants to do. He removes your guilt, he removes your shame, and he removes your immaturity. And that's my prayer for all of us, myself included, that God would give us those gifts freely and abundantly so that we might become the kingdom of God on earth.